Well, hello, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky tucked away under the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us. It is Thursday, November the 16th, and we're uh, recording this uh, podcast with a, a gr dear friend and great scholar, Dr. Thomas Ice. He's been on the program before, and of course, if you follow Bible prophecy, uh, he needs no introduction. Uh, really, I'll bring uh, Dr. Ice on here in just a moment. We're going to talk today about answering the critics of Bible prophecy, in particular, uh, the pre-trib rapture. We had him on uh Oh, a couple months ago to talk about debunking some of the, the tired old arguments against pre-trib, but uh, we've got a conference coming up uh, in uh, less than a month now, and I wanted him to come back on and talk a little bit about uh, some of the speakers that'll be at that conference and and once again touch on some of the uh, the, the criticisms of uh, prophecy in general and, and pre-trib in particular. But before we get to that, uh, just a couple of quick Announcement. It's been a great week already uh, here uh, at Not By Works Ministries with our uh, podcast. If you haven't had a chance to check them out, I really encourage you uh, to listen to some of the podcasts we posted on Monday. We had uh, Sean Wilson on, and we talked about getting the gospel wrong. Actually, I was on his program that day, but we've reposted it. And uh, so I encourage you to listen to that uh, as we talk about really what our driving passion is here at NBW, and that is the clarity and accuracy of the gospel. On Tuesday, we had uh, Nathan Jones on, uh, continuing uh, with part two of his uh, two-part series on the message of the minor prophets. And I got to tell you, that was a fantastic discussion. I know you enjoyed it as much as I did, but check that out. Of course, yesterday was our Wednesday World Events Update with Randy, always uh, the highlight of the week. And then we close it out tomorrow uh, with a special appearance on the Christian Underground News Network, and I'll be talking about 10 Things Satan Hates. And so I just encourage you as we head into the Thanksgiving week to stay in touch through our website, notbyworks.org. Lots of upcoming podcasts planned, a very special Thanksgiving Day a podcast planned for next week. Uh, and I want to remind you, too, that you can go to our online store and click on the free resources section. And we just posted some additional uh, free uh, stuff there. We try to post two or three things a week, uh, totally free, just for you to to use uh, as you see fit. Uh, so uh, check that out. And while you're on the store, you can check out some of our other resources, books and streaming video and things like that. One section that I always forget to mention, but our, our good friends at Red Pill Prince uh, have uh, kind of handled all of our merchandising with our shirts and sweatshirts and cups and all kinds of stuff, uh, toboggans and things if you live in the where it's cold and in the winter like we do. Uh, I've got one that I use when I'm out plowing my driveway. And uh, But anyway, uh, they handle all of that. We've got some pretty cool stuff out there with MBW Ministries logo on it. And what's cool about NBW is when you're wearing one of our uh, shirts or sweatshirts or something, and someone says, hey, what's NBW Ministries? It gives you the perfect opportunity to explain that salvation is not by works. It's the grace of God, and we can't earn it. Uh, so while you're on our uh, website and online store, check out uh, the Red Pill Prince merchandise page uh, as well. So with that, let me uh, turn our attention to Scripture before I bring uh, Dr. Ison. 2 Timothy 2.15, I think is a great a place to kind of launch our discussion from uh, with Dr. Ice today, last letter written by Paul, roughly 67 AD, and in his parting words to his young son in the faith, Timothy, uh, writing, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And of course, uh, a dispensationalist of uh, uh, picked up on that phrase, rightly dividing some of the greatest uh, dispensational books ever written. He borrowed that phrase from the King James Version uh, to uh, as a title for the book. I'm thinking of uh, people like Clarence Larkin, Schofield, and the like. But that phrase, rightly dividing, in the original Greek is actually one word, orthotomeo. Orthotomeo, and it's an interesting word. It's it's what we call in Greek a, a hapax legomena, meaning it's the only time it's ever used in the entire Greek New Testament, just a single use. Uh, and it means to cut straight or to guide along a straight path. And although it's only used here in 2 Timothy 2.15 in the New Testament, translated rightly dividing, it is used a couple of times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, both of them in Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a very familiar passage uh, to most people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. That that word direct in our English Bibles in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is that word orthotomeo. He will make your paths straight if you trust in him and follow his wisdom. Same idea is repeated in Proverbs 11.5, the righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright. Uh, in other words, uh, if you follow God's direction in your life, then you'll find yourself cutting a path in a straight direction or cutting a road across a country that might be forested or otherwise difficult to pass through, but you'll be able to cut straight through and get to your destination uh, without issue if you trust in the Lord and follow His Word. In the same way, if we go back to 2 Timothy 2.15, uh, if we rightly divide the Word of God, if we let the text speak for itself, we don't bring to it our presuppositions or allegorical, fanciful, spiritualized meaning. We just let the plain, normal words on the page say what they say, and then we will inevitably arrive at a dispensational understanding of Scripture. That is, that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, and that God has a plan for Israel, and He has a plan for the church. And uh, right now, we're living in the dispensation of the church age, and someday the Lord will call the church home. Uh, he will finish out his 490-year plan with Daniel, with a seven-year great day of the Lord's wrath, and Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior, will come back and rule and reign in perfect righteousness from a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem uh, and uh, reign over a thousand-year kingdom. So that's uh, that's our viewpoint in a nutshell. But uh, Dr. Ice, thanks for being with us. So do you do you feel like that and I know the answer to this, but do you feel like that most of the objections to pre-tribulationism really start with a bad hermeneutic? Well, yeah, of course, because uh, most a lot of people use a the same hermeneutic, which is the grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation. And then when they come to eschatology, uh, in other words, Bible prophecy, they shift. Mm. And uh, I think they bring in ideas uh, from outside the text of what they think it should be and, you know, kind of blend that in to, you know, they abandon this, uh, the grammatical approach to Scripture. And so that's what uh, causes inconsistency. And I know you and I would argue that uh, – consistent literal interpretation leads to our position. Yeah, and the key there is consistent. You're right. I remember yes. Dr. Ryrie making a big deal out of that, as well as uh, my mentor in my PhD program, Dr. Mike Stallard, is that uh, everybody claims these days to practice literal hermeneutics, although if you go back into the middle of the 20th century when Walward and Pentecost were at their peak, of course, yeah. some of the guys like O.T. Alice and them, they would admit to being more allegorical. But these days, everyone says, hey, I, I take the Bible literally, but they don't do it consistently, as you pointed out, right? They, they take certain passages more allegorically, and the one, the prop, what's, what's, what's kind of funny is the prophecies that have already been fulfilled, well, naturally, they take those literally because there's no other way to take them, right? right. I, I was just going to point that out, that <laughs> when you compare, and and both future and past prophecies use a lot of similar language. And so, you know, so they're in a bind there where they have to, uh, you know, do a quick uh, shuffle there. Yeah. And and isn't it true that they, they start with the New Testament in general and kind of prioritize that, and then they read that back into the Old Testament, which is why they get, you know, replacement theology? Well, yeah, but even the New Testament doesn't support them uh, <clears throat> totally. And so that their idea of the New Testament, so-called New Covenant and all this kind of stuff, overrides the literal meaning. They use that as a device to override the actual meaning of, you know, of the Old Testament. And we don't, I don't believe, and I'm sure you don't either, that uh, you, you have preference of one over the other. In other words, uh, they're both taken the same way. You don't give priority to the other, although the New Testament does have progressive revelation. In other words, uh, it it uh, starts, you know, with the uh, Genesis three fifteen 
uh, prophecy and they expand throughout the Bible. And by the time you come to the New Testament, you know, obviously Jesus is a fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, except it's a partial fulfillment. He hasn't finished his career, so to speak, here on planet Earth. And so th that's where a lot of these issues uh, revolve around is we believe that, and of course we have in, a few interpretive issues that I'm sure even you and I would disagree on, on a few minor things. Uh, so we're not just absolutely uh, lockstep on everything, but we take the same approach and have the same basic interpretive understanding of these passages. And so does everybody in our camp. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that, uh, you know, the priority again. You know, we don't prioritize one testament or one part of the Bible over another, but we do believe in the priority of prior revelation. In other words, you, you've got to read, as you said, the Bible, understanding that it, it tells a story as God progressively unveiled more about himself and about his plan over a period of 1,500 years through the pen of 40 different human authors in three different languages. Uh, it it gives us information, but where you make a mistake is when we when we and this is I think what guys that don't believe in the preterb rapture do they think that later revelation can fundamentally change the meaning of prior revelation. And uh, I can remember uh, the question that was asked to me in I don't remember if it was in my. Um, comprehensive exams at the end of my PhD or entrance exams, but somewhere along the line in my doctoral studies, because I just remember being very nervous and sitting there with a bunch of th three guys, you know, across from me that were, you know, collectively brilliant. Uh, but anyway, I remember being asked the question, can you understand the original meaning of the Old Testament if you've never read the New Testament? And of course, the answer has to be yes. Uh, it might surprise people to know that, but absolutely it's yes, because otherwise, how could the original recipients of it understand it? So, and where that has implications for prophecy is think about King David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. When God promised him a throne and a temple and a kingdom, uh, if he had to wait a thousand years later for the New Testament to come along and say, oh, what that really means is a spiritualized kingdom reigning in your heart, then that's disingenuous of God to tell him that, because how could he possibly know that if he doesn't get the rest of the story until a thousand years later, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, those are a lot of the issues that uh, the progress of Revelation, I think, uh, following that uh, helps one understand properly what God meant by what he said. Yeah. And and I like what you said a moment ago about Christ has not fully fulfilled the Messianic prophecies. That is right. such a key point. I mean, you could go to Isaiah, uh, or let's see, Luke 4, beginning of Christ's Galilean ministry. You remember where he walks into the temple and he picks up the scroll and he begins reading, and he's yeah. reading what we now call Isaiah 61, uh, but he stops literally mid-sentence from the Old Testament text and says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing, but he doesn't go on to talk about the prophecies related to his second advent, right. day of vengeance, and uh, you know all of that kind of stuff, the wrath of God being poured out. So even Jesus himself acknowledged that there was partial fulfillment in his uh, in these pr prophetic passages, and and the future fulfillment awaits the future. Yeah, well, I, partial fulfillment. That first part was fulfilled fully. <clears throat> unless someone misunderstand by partial fulfillment, because sometimes Correct. people use that to say, well, you know, like you have two fulfillments of the same prophecy and things. And I don't, I don't buy that. There's a lot of stuff going around today, you know, on, yeah. uh, on that guy's selling books for, you know, over a million copies of books that teach that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Very, very good point. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't slip one by the, the master teacher there, but yeah, I actually have taught the same thing that technically there really isn't a category of partial fulfillment that what we call it is fulfillment in stages such as daniel's 70 weeks it's it's one prophecy and eat and it has one fulfillment it's just not all of it has been fulfilled yet there's more to come so right. maybe fulfillment in stages is a better way to say that you're right so as we think about pre-trib what and you've been doing this a long time obviously on the front lines of of defending 
the pre-tribulational view of Scripture. What uh, what do you think is uh, are, are some of the biggest arguments or the things that you hear from critics uh, that they say, oh, this is why you're wrong? But maybe one or two. Well, one thing is uh, they take passages from the Olivet Discourse, which I think, uh, and unfortunately, many pre-tribbers believe the rapture is in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, in other words, Luke, uh, uh, Mark 13, or et cetera. And they use that to argue against pre-tribulationalism. And uh, I went through a book that came out about five years ago, and two-thirds of that book was arguments along that lines. And unfortunately, uh, you know, if I might mention my good friend Hal Lindsay, you know, did some of that. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, what they're doing is taking what's called a historicist interpretation, uh, which is inconsistent with consistent literal interpretation, where we believe all these prophecies are future. And so Christ, uh, the night before he was killed, introduces for the first time the preacher of rapture in John 14, 1 That's through right. 3. And in fact, every once Judas leaves the room at the end of about four-fifths of the way through <clears throat> chapter 13 in this upper room discourse, he everything Jesus talks about from that point on, there's eight or nine things all the way up to chapter 17, which was given in the garden, but that's part of the upper room discourse generally, and uh, is brand new revelation, brand new church age truth. Mm. And so that's when Christ introduces for the first time uh, the idea of the rapture. And uh, he, so you have it in John 14, one through three. And uh, then Paul in his ministry, the first epistle he wrote, I believe was Galatians mm -hmm. to deal with the situation in Acts 15, Jerusalem council. And then his second and third epistles within nine months of each other, most people believe were first and second Thessalonians. And those are the, the, the heaviest books first that, that talk about the church's Bible prophecy or eschatology. And that's where he really expands on the rapture and things like that. And so that gets out there very early. You know, uh, some people think, oh, you talk about the rapture, that's advanced stuff. Well, it's new. It's not advanced. It's not hard. And the theological reason for the rapture is because in the church age, we learn from Ephesians, for example, chapter two, that there is a co-equality uh, once the day of Pentecost began between Jews and Gentiles. They're co-equal in Christ, in the body of Christ. There's uh, neither male nor female or bond or free, you know, uh, and all of that kind of stuff. We're all co-equal in Christ. But once the rapture takes place, then you've got to, as you alluded to earlier, there's a 70th week of Daniel where Israel is the instrument through which he's working that will complete uh, at, at the, by the time of the second coming. Uh, and Zechariah even talks about chapter 13, that two, uh, one third of the Jews will be saved during that time. And uh, two thirds will be purged out during the seven year tribulation. Hmm. And then you go into the millennium and you, you have a re uh, configuration of the ratio of Jewish people to Gentiles. Uh, some people think it's one in 70 and all this uh, type of ratio, but you, you, if you if you take the Bible consistently, literally, and let it tell you what it's talking about, then, then you have to come with preacher of rapture, and the, the rapture is not found in the Olivet Discourse. Yeah, it really isn't, and I know, again, some of our colleagues uh, dif differ on that. I know we had right. a speaker last year at your conference that uh, kind of presented some views that, you know, and with good support, you know, to try to defend right. the notion that it's in there. And that's fine. I mean, historically, a lot of dispensationalists have have done that. Um, but you're right. The rapture is never even hinted at 
remotely from the mind of Almighty God until the next day. I think the Olivet Discourse was on Wednesday. So the next day you had uh, in the upper room, Jesus, you know, John 14, okay. I go to prepare a place for you that where I go, you you know, you, you may be also. So I think that's the reference. And then doctrinally, as you said, so that was 33 AD, the the, uh, the upper room discourse, April 2nd, 33 AD, in my, in my view, in Harold Honer's view. Uh, yeah. And uh, he, you know, and I have to respect him because he gave me the lowest grade I made in all of my years at Dallas Seminary. So. Well, he, he was a very tough grinder, but he took uh, and refined uh, what was the guy named from England? Usher? Uh, no, no, oh. no. The British guy uh, from the 1800s who did this great work on the yeah. uh, on the 70 weeks of Daniel and showed that he was off because he didn't factor in it. The shift from a 360 day to 365 and a quarter day year. Yeah. In fact, I, uh, some people believe that during the tribulation we'll go back to a 360 day year. You ever heard that? Yeah, it's it's very possible. It's certainly going right. to be a Jewish. You know, the world's going to be centered in in Israel at that time, uh, with the Antichrist taking the throne. But yeah, you, you know, so so Harold Honer, I think his his one of his greatest contributions. Uh, to the body of Christ was kind of redating the apostolic age and helping with that. So, so then, you know, that, that was, that was part of his Cambridge PhD. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, and so that meant it had to be approved by the graders there at Cambridge. Yeah, no, no, that's right. Yeah. It was very well, uh, you know, well documented. Uh, and by the way, to clarify, I earned that grade. It's not like he gave yes. it undeservedly. <laughs> uh, just I want to make sure there's no misunderstanding. But well, he, he, he was a tough grader, though. He was. He was a very tough grader. But uh, so the so then you've got that was 33 A.D. And then, as you said, very early on in the church age, Paul gets saved at 35 in 35 A.D. I mean, and then by 51 A.D., so less than 20 years into the church age. God is revealing doctrinally the details about the rapture, right. which twice in that first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul makes it clear that the church is not going to be here when the wrath of God is poured out. That's so right. I mean, these are very solid biblical arguments. And of course, uh, I just preached a message for the rest of this year at our home church, Plum Creek Chapel. I've been f focusing on Israel because... Uh, I, I just finished Nehemiah, and rather than start a new book with my schedule and travel schedule, I'm mm -hmm. going to wait for the first of the year. So we're we're just having isolated messages on Israel, and I just did one. Why are you doing Israel all of a sudden? Yeah, can you imagine why? <laughs> yeah, everybody's talking yeah. about Israel, you yeah. know. So I just <sighs> preached last week uh, a message from Ephesians, which you mentioned, uh, uh, why everyone's a dispensationalist, whether you realize it or not. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm going to, I pointed out in the message, look, you know, you know, how many of you guys have a garden? And of course, a lot of people around here have gardens or greenhouses for the winter. And I said, when you go out to tend your garden, do you do it in the nude? They said, nope. I said, well, then you're a dispensationalist because that's the way it used to be in Adam and Eve's day. And it's just, <laughs> but my point is, it's self-evident that right. over time, God has interacted with mankind differently. Doesn't mean different ways of salvation, of course. No. Everyone's always saved by faith. But it does mean that the stewardship or the economy uh, changes over time. That that should be pretty evident. But, um, you know, it, it's and, interesting. And, and the reason for that is God is going to be fully glorified in history he's demonstrating different things in mm. history yeah in different ages and stages and all of that kind of stuff and that's why he's doing it he, he's doing it the history the way it's being done yeah and and you know you pointed out um something you said i made a note here i can't remember the exact quote but it prompted me to to, to elaborate on it and that is that you know god's plan all along was to bring salvation through the Jews. That's why Jesus mm -hmm. told the woman at the well, uh, I think it was, uh, salvation is of the Jews. And uh, you go back to Abraham 12, all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think this is this is where it all kind of comes together uh, in the kingdom someday. So, um, so, yeah, I think you're right. Going back to the Olivet Discourse, which you mentioned as one of the sort of the primary passages where people tend to go awry. They they don't cut straight, like we talked about, that orthotomeo. By the way, that's where we get our English word orthodontia. 
And, uh, you know, nobody would want an orthodontist who doesn't know how to keep your teeth straight, but yet they're comfortable with preachers that don't know how to keep the text straight. That's always surprised me a little bit. But uh, the, the Olivet Discourse, there are some passages that, you know, you could understand why someone might say, oh, well, that's right. Sure. Like, uh, so I'll let you comment on it. But most notably, after Jesus, you know, gives his signs, you know, uh, Matthew, uh, we'll use Matthew's account, but as you mentioned, it's also in Mark 13 and and in uh, uh, Luke, Luke 21. 17 and 21. Yeah, yeah, 21. Yeah. I think 17 is a different occasion. Okay. But same sure, idea. Yeah. But, um, but uh, he gives the signs in 4 to 14, then he talks about the abomination of desolation, then he goes more specific signs, 15 to 31, talks about his return, and then the whole rest of the Olivet Discourse is essentially practical uh, admonition and, and you know analogies and sort of the so what question, like a good preacher, now that I've given you these signs, what should you do with it? And so he starts with the parable of the fig tree which has been vastly misunderstood. It's it's not mm. a prophecy. It's just an no. analogy. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but you get into the the different watchfulness uh, uh, passages. One, the very first one is the days of Noah. Uh, but he says, um, as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Luke's account says uh, destroyed them all. Uh, so we know the ones taken away were taken away in judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and anyway, so also with the coming of Son of Man. And then here's those rapturesque passages. I'd love for you to comment on it. Then two men will be in the field, one taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and the other left. A lot of people say that's the rapture. What do you say? Well, uh, in a parallel passage, it gives a little fuller statement of this. I can't remember if it's Mark or Luke. And it says, and where are they taken? Yeah. It says where the worm dieth not and something. In other words, uh, the worm crawls in, the worm crawls out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's they're taken in judgment. And the one that is left is taken uh, into the millennium. Yeah. Or goes into the he's left behind to go in the millennium so that we believe that at the second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation when christ returns all the unbelievers you know there's at least two passages that indicate this uh, matthew 25 is one of them that indicates every unbeliever will be killed yeah and the millennium starts off with 100 percent believers and of course we know that thousand years you're gonna uh, you know people can live a thousand years at that point and therefore they're gonna have a lot of kids and over time there'll be all of these unbelievers that are afraid to say anything publicly because satan is acts like an amplifier you know and emboldens people like in a crowd and things like that uh and he's going to be released in order to like a magnet draw out those who are really unbelievers mm-hmm. and uh so the point is they're taken uh, away in judgment in conjunction with the second coming. Yeah. And like I said, Luke's account in Luke 17, which is a parallel account, Jesus uses the same analogy. He, he makes it clear that the flood comes and destroys them all. So therefore yes. for our leaders, I mean, for our listeners, rather, uh, a lot of people say that the, the, that the flood, you know, took, uh, Noah and his family away in the same way that the rapture is going to take the church away. But that's not at all what the text is saying. The ones taken away, as you said, are taken away in judgment, swept away by the flood. The ones left behind are the righteous. And so this that's passage it. is actually saying exactly the opposite of what some people uh, suggest. I mean, what was it? He says, as in the days of Noah. Well, what happened in the days of the Noah? Who was left behind on the earth? And who was taken off the earth? Well, right. the righteous were taken, were left behind. The unrighteous were taken off the earth. So I think it's pretty clear. Um, the whole point of it is, you know, not to, t- you know, and then people take the days of Noah a little bit out of context too, and make more out of it. Well, uh, that's a, that's a a statement that has a restrictive state uh, sub statement. Yep, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. And you're right. A lot of people take that and they 
look at every kind of possibility relating to the days of Noah and they read it into today. Yeah, and that's why they say, oh, it can't be talking about the second coming as as we we believe it is, and I think the text supports that it is, because, oh, and that at the end of the tribulation, oh, it's not going to be normal living, but that's not his point. His point is, just as in Noah's day, judgment was was coming and warning was given, that's and right. ignored the warning. That's right. They went about their yeah. everyday life. Exactly. And the same thing's going to happen during the tribulation. Uh, you know, there are going to be warnings announced. I mean, good grief with a seal trumpet and bold judgments alone, not to mention the two witnesses and the 144,000 and the Bible that people can still read. Well, uh, and yet that many will ignore it. And so consequently, in the same way that the flood swept those people that ignored the warnings in Noah's day away to judgment, Christ will send unbelievers to judgment at his return. Well, you bring up a good issue, and that is, I think everybody in the tribulation is going to be evangelized mm -hmm. over, and it's going to be the greatest time of evangelism in the history of the world. And and uh, you have regular gospel, you have all those tracks left behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think when, once the rapture occurs, a lot of people are going to start getting saved. Yeah, and I think there could be you know, as Arnold Fruchtenbaum argues, like a, as much as a three and a half year interval between the rapture that ends the church age and the signing of the covenant between the revived Roman Antichrist and uh, Israel, uh, that's what starts a tribulation. Yeah. And therefore, you could have millions of people becoming believers in that interim, uh, you know, and things. And then you have the pre normal gospel in the tribulation, the preaching of 144,000, which I think takes place in the first half. And these are like 144,000 uh, apostle Paul's. In fact, he says he's one who was born out of due time. <laughs> and a lot of people think, and I lean in that direction that he's, he's implying that he was like going to be one of the 144,000 and all that. I don't have time to explain all that, but mm -hmm. And then you have the, at the midpoint, right before the midpoint, you have an angel that preaches the gospel or mm -hmm. angels uh, to everybody, apparently in their languages. I mean, this is going to be so gospelized. Uh, nobody's going to say, but I haven't heard you yeah. know, or anything like that. Yeah, a couple of great points there that I want to elaborate on. First of all, we have a, a biblical textual basis for that statement that everyone on earth will be evangelized prior to the second coming, and that's the Olivet Discourse again. Jesus' words in Matthew 24, right. 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and all means all, and then the end will come. So that, you know, right now in the present age, we have a mandate, a commission, that we're to take the gospel to the whole world, but there's no guarantee that we're going to succeed in that prior to the rapture. The rapture could happen today, and there's still unreached people groups. But we do have a promise from the Lord himself that prior to the second coming, everyone on earth will have heard the gospel. Um, and then you know, as far as that angel, I take, I think that's in uh, Revelation 14, might be 15, but anyway, right in there somewhere. I take that as happening at the very, toward the end. I think it's kind of a prolepsis in the preparation for Armageddon. And basically that by that late stage, if there is anyone that the 144,000 and their subsequent disciples have not gotten to, God's going to send the, this angel to make sure that everybody hears the gospel. Uh, no one will uh, will have an excuse. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, another comment you made, which is something that only in the last couple of years have I really kind of really started thinking about. I used to comment for years in, in teaching and preaching about Bible prophecy that there is a converse relationship between the state of the world at the rapture and the state of the world at the second coming to this extent, this is what I used to say, that whereas at the second coming, when the millennium starts, everyone on earth will be a believer. At the tribulation, at first, everyone will be an unbeliever. But that's not true, because as you said, the people can start getting saved immediately after the rapture. In fact, I presume that there'll be a huge harvest within 10 minutes because right. they'll see finally, oh, you know, Dr. Ice was right or, you know, J.B. Hickson was right. I better trust in Christ today. Or, you know, so by the time the tribulation actually starts, which is 
sometime later, uh, you know, it could be months, could be years. We don't know how long that gap of time is. But by the time the treaty is signed, there's going to be already a huge uh, contingent of, of, of uh, you know, believers. So that's a great point. Well, you know, it's it's significant that probably the, the, the nation in the world that has the numerically the most Christians is probably China. Yeah. And I remember how uh, the missionaries uh, in, in the late 40s estimated that there are only uh, three quarters of a million Christians in China. And then communism took over and we didn't hear about things. And then when Nixon opened it up in the 70s, all of a sudden there's all these, these Christians. And of course, they, I've been to China, uh, you know, and spoken over there and they're and I wouldn't go back now because they're clamping down. I was there about seven, eight years ago when it was probably freer than some other times. I mean, they have these huge church, mega church. I went to this church once that holds 5,000 people in mm. Beijing. Wow. And uh, it was huge. And they, they had endless services, like five or six services, and everyone almost full, mm. uh, things like that. But, you know, there's hardly any place in the world now that hasn't heard. Right, right. And they may not have the Bible in all their languages and everything, but there, you know, there's just a, probably a few remote people groups that have, have not heard the gospel. And the, the, the missions since in the last 200 years has been amazing. After World War II, there was a whole group of veterans that, uh, you know, used radio, uh, printing, all kinds of things to get the gospel out. And I, I met some of them over the years that started this ministry and that ministry. And, you know, uh, John MacArthur, for example, uh, had um, people in Vietnam listening to some little broadcast thing. They would put a broadcast and, and there was like, all these people working on the rice paddies, listening to Bible teaching. Unreal. Hundreds of thousands of people. That was in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it really is striking. And that in and of itself is a sign of the times that yeah. we're getting close, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's just amazing what, uh, what the Lord is doing. And so, you know, to, to kind of, uh, kind of close the loop here on the, 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 the criticisms of, uh, the pre-trib rapture, I think if you're inclined to allegorize the text, not cut straight, like we talked about and read into the new Testament, uh, spiritualized promises, then yeah, you're going to, you're going to read passages like the Olivet Discourse a little differently. But if you just let the text speak for itself and understand that these promises made to Israel will come true precisely as God said they will, in the same way that the first uh, Advent promises came true literally, literally born in Bethlehem, literally born in, you know, born of a virgin, that kind of thing. The, the the second coming passages will come true um, as well. So before we close, talk to me a little bit about the conference upcoming. Uh, uh, you've called it um, Answering the Critics. Great name, by the way, great theme for the conference this year. But every year, the Pre-Trip Research Center hosts a conference uh, in Dallas. Uh, it's uh, most of the time, anyway, been at the Sheridan Grand Hotel at the DFW Airport. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of tell us a little bit of maybe about your background with the Pre-Trib Research Center and uh, some uh, information about this year's conference. Well, <clears throat> Tim, this was Tim LaHaye's idea. And he sensed about 35 years ago that pre-tribulationalism was somewhat in decline. And he wrote, he wrote a book defending the rapture called No Fear of the Storm. And uh, he went on a trip uh, when he turned his church over to David Jeremiah, who he personally picked uh, mm -hmm. to take over. And he spent a year traveling around the mission field. And he took a book, my first book that I wrote with Wayne House called Dominion Theology, Blessing or Curse. And when he got back, he called me up and said, we need, uh, would you be interested in helping me uh, do this thing on the preacher of rapture? By the way, I, I almost 
abandoned pre-tribulationalism at one point in my life, you know, almost went over to the, you know, the, the dark world. side. In fact, I decided to do that for about a week once and was going to leave pre-trib and everything and, and dispensationalism. But um, what, what was that statement uh, about waking up from the slumber or something like that? But uh, yeah, but, you know, I was heading in that direction, but, and as a result, uh, I, I wrote this book with Wayne House called Dominion Theology, Blessing or Curse, and spent a lot of time defending, you know, future for Israel, the preacher had a chapter on the preacher of rapture and other things like that. And so that's what attracted LaHaye and I together. And so we sat down and planned this conference. And then uh, a few months later, he asked me to go full time to work with him, which I've been, I did until he died about you know, uh, five or six years ago. Yeah. Maybe seven years ago. I've lost track. Yeah. I remember the, it was the 25th anniversary. Yes. Of pre-trib the conference. I happened to be speaking. I think that might've been the first time I ever had the privilege of speaking. Uh, and it was right after he had died. If I, if I'm remembering the dates, right. Well, and, uh, this is our 32nd annual pre-trib study group. Yeah. And we've met every year since that first one, uh, there in the Dallas Fort, he thought Dallas Fort Worth was good because it's in the middle, but all the Dallas professors and things like that. We probably had 75 to 80 of our people die over, you know, <laughs> yeah. as time has gone on. But we, we've got, uh, for the last five or six years, we've got record enrollment this year of people coming. Yeah. Well, uh, th that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is uh, we're about a month away from that conference are a little bit less than a month, maybe yes. three weeks. And uh, is it, is there still spots available or is it sold yeah. out? Yes. We're just going to have to arrange things a little different seating and stuff uh, to accommodate everybody. But yes, uh, we got Andy Woods, of course, uh, is uh, doing the first thing critique of the pre-wrath rapture view. So we do an hour and a half and this, this was supposed to be academic. It's if, if a person wants all these popular emotional things, this is not the conference for them. Mm -hmm. We felt that there was a lack of academic defense of pre-tribulationalism and uh, similar doctrines, premillennialism and all that dispensationalism. And so we wanted to have an academically focused thing. And that's what we have for two and a half days. And Randy Price is going to talk on how can dispensationalists believe in the literal fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple. That's one of the top five questions that people bring up against dispensationalism is, are you believe there's going to be a literal temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48? And literal sacrifices? Hadn't Christ already fulfilled those sacrifices? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. What's, what's interesting is all those sacrifices, as you look at them in Ezekiel 40, are not reflective of the atonement. They're only reflective of the cleansing rituals to, uh, you know, because there's different types of sacrifices. Sure. And yeah. Things, and, but, and not only that, but, you know, when people bring that, uh, you know, up to me, and, and like you said, they're often incredulous. I just quickly remind them, look, the sacrifices in the Old Testament didn't save anybody. Yes. They were just a shadow of the substance. And so whether you're looking, you know, forward or backward, the the ultimate substance is Christ himself. And the sacrificial system in the kingdom is going to have even more meaning yes. and substance because we now have the full picture and Christ is sitting on the throne. So That's you know, right. I, I think people misunderstand the, the whole point of it. But anyway, so you got Andy Woods. Randall and we got a guy named John Ballard, who I've just recently met, uh, and he's doing a case for pre-tribulational rapture in the church. We always have at least one pre-trib uh, thing. Now, we, we've had many years where we've had 10 or 12, but uh, <laughs> this is a focus on that. Then Mike Vlock, the hermeneutics of non-dispensationalism. Which is what we've been kind of touching on a bit here. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the inconsistency. You know, he's a, he's a real scholar. Mm -hmm. And our banquet this year is Jeff Kenley. Uh, and it's going to be Jesus Christ hero for the ages. Mm. And uh, he is such a, a popular speaker now. He's written a lot of books and uh, people. Oh, and I, I just noticed you've got Sean Crane uh, doing the music. Have you had him before? No, but yeah, you know, I'm at those, those conferences he's at. And so we just grabbed him. 
Yeah, he's wonderful. He's at the, the Mid-America Prophecy Conference, where you and I have spoken a lot uh, there. And he's going to do The King is Coming, his the, famous song. Yeah, Midnight Cry. Midnight yeah, the Midnight, Cry. that's it. Yeah. That's yep. it. I, yeah. yeah. You're right. And uh, then we're going to have uh, J.B. Hickson. You ever heard of him? Yeah, he's all right. I agree with most of what he says. But uh, So what what is he going to talk about? So I'm going to talk about uh, this uh, content from my new book, Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. I'm going to be talking about how the false prophet, who, who doesn't get a whole lot of attention, frankly, by comparison to the Antichrist, <laughs> right. but uh, but how he is going to oversee this uh, Mark of the Beast system during this, the tribulation and how technology is going to be his mechanism to do that. Well, and then we have uh, Lee Brainerd, who we've just discovered a few years ago, and this guy is going through and reading uh, the original Greek and Latin, over 500 volumes, people don't realize, of church fathers all throughout church history up to about 1500 have never been translated into English. Mm -hmm. And so he's very good at reading Greek and Latin. And uh, we used, when Tim Lay and I started, 33 years ago, nobody knew of a pre-trib rapture statement before Darby. Hmm. And we're up to like almost 60 now. Yep. We're finding them all over the place. I had some articles in Bibsac uh, and stuff when we started finding some of those all the way back to the 200s yeah. and throughout church history. And it's something that's pretty amazing. There's a lot of guys that are close to it, but don't quite do it. We don't include them. These are guys that have taught. And what's amazing is one of the early church fathers who, who is uh, who said away with a thousand years taught pre-tribulationalism. I mean, <laughs> it's just amazing the things that this guy's finding. And so he's going to give us another update on some more recent finds in the last year that he's come up with. Yeah. And you can't overemphasize that enough because uh, that's the, the, the number one argument people use against pre-trib. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, oh, this is all new. You don't, none of the church fathers believe this. I mean, every century, just about, you've got evidence that they believed in a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church, once for Israel. So yeah, that's very powerful stuff. And then we have uh, Olivier Melnick. He's a Jew originally from France, or France. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said that right. But yeah, he's a good American, uh, works for uh, Jews for Jesus. And, yep. or, or, yeah, I think that's who, uh, and he's doing the normalization of anti-Semitism. The longest hatred becomes the new normal. And Great this, title. This is, he, and he's an expert on that. He's written books on it, and he keeps up on this, uh, and probably is the leading scholar, you know, in, in this area. And he's Jewish himself, needless to say. And uh, then Jesse Randolph, who is a pastor in Omaha, is doing exegetical and pastoral insight into the future-oriented prophecies in Hosea. So, you know, drilling down on a particular book on f the future prophecies out of the book of Hosea. And we always have on Tuesday night, uh, at our first ever meeting, Hal Lindsey was our speaker on Tuesday night. And he gave his presentation, and then we spent the rest of the evening talking about current events. Hmm. And that's how we started doing Tuesday nights on current events. Hmm. And uh, so the guy that we have almost every year, which we do this year, is Bill Koenig, who for 20-something years was a White House correspondent. And this guy is so up on current events like you wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. And he does a tremendous job, and he gives us a survey of current events. I'm sure I'll have nothing to talk about this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell you what, I was with Bill at the Prophecy Watchers Conference the weekend of the Hamas attacks, and oh, he wow. and Bill Salas together got up on stage that morning, Saturday morning, and uh, just uh, from the hip, just, you know, talked and elaborated and, and commentated on, on what they saw as happening, and it was fascinating. So, yeah, he's, he's uh, fantastic. Well, and then... Because of this, we had a change, and we got Dave Reagan is going to talk about my pilgrimage as a pre, uh, to a premillennial viewpoint. He grew up Church of Christ, mm. and uh, you know he was a you know he has a PhD from Harvard in political science. He was a professor at University of Texas 
in Austin, and he was tasked with keeping up the Six Day War at that time. Hmm. And uh, that's what when he became premier. <laughs> Huh. During, that? You know, at that time but he's a he's a obviously a great tremendous guy mm. who has had a bible prophecy ministry for many years and then we're going to have a panel uh discussion we changed it and we're going to have our last session is going to be two hours long and so we're going to get out 30 minutes later than normal <laughs> and it's going to be randy price jb hickson arnold fruchtenbaum and Tim Sigler, who's taking over for Arnold's ministry, a Jewish guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to discuss the situation in Israel. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Now, uh, uh, that's going to end the conference. Yeah. So all of these guys I've I've had the chance to work with, except for uh, Jordan Ballard. Uh, but I've shared the platform with them. Of course, many of them are well known in the uh, prophecy community. Andy Woods, Randall Price. I've just worked with Olivia Melnick. Uh, not too long ago, we did a conference together down in Texas, uh, super guy. And uh, so that final uh, panel discussion, uh, this is since I've got you, uh, everybody else can take a quick break while I ask this question. But uh, are we supposed to prepare remarks or is it just a Q&A? No, uh, what you're, you're to prepare remarks, but don't give a presentation, if you know what I'm saying. Sure. In other words, yeah. It's going to be, you need to analyze what's happening. Okay. Remarks, yeah. analyzing that, but not a presentation. You'll have about 20 to 25 minutes for each okay. guy. And then, then we'll have question answers. Okay, perfect, perfect. And, well, so folks can go to pre-trib.org. That's the website where you can register for the conference. They've got hotel discounts there at the Sheraton. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it's going to go fast. So you folks. I, need I to, think we're full up on uh, rooms at the Sheraton. So they, the can hotel. Still, yeah, yeah. they can still come, but they might have to stay in a different hotel. And that's fine. There are a lot of hotels yeah. right around there. It's there an airport area. But uh, yeah, my, my wife, uh, thankfully, thought to get our, we always get two rooms because we have my daughter and uh, other family that come with us to help at the table. But uh, she thankfully snagged a couple of rooms several weeks ago. So we're, we're good there. But uh, yeah. but anyway, well, Dr. Ice, it's always a privilege, always a pleasure and uh, great stuff as usual. I hope folks will take advantage. Now, are you live streaming it too or, or not? No, uh, we, we felt it cost too much to live stream because you're in a hotel, you have to pay them, you have to get the special line in and all this. But what we do do is within a couple of months is we have everything put up on our website for free. Perfect. You know, they, we've got the last 17 years on video on our website hmm. and they go watch some of those to get an idea from the past uh, of what, and we've, we've had er just about anybody who's everybody who's, or everybody who's anybody uh, who's in Bible prophecy has spoken at our conferences over the years. I, I can remember, I think I first started coming when you were in the year five or six, pretty early on, not from the beginning, like a lot of folks have, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, you, I've learned a lot and, and got introduced to some great teachers that way. So I'm the only one that's been there every year. Is that right? Yeah. Everyone else has gone to be with the Lord or? No, uh, some people didn't start early. I see. I did, you know, that have been there many, many, many times. But, uh, well, as I always like to say, signing off, we'll see you here, there, in the air. See you here, there, or in the air. Thank you so much, Dr. Ice. And thank you all for listening. Uh, remember, uh, keep us in your prayers. We we love you guys. We appreciate uh, the encouragement and the support. And uh, if we can ever help you, you can reach out to us at notbyworks.org. God bless everyone.